Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us safely together again. I pray that you will guide us in our discussion, help us to think uh, with principles uh, of how to manage our money in a way that will glorify you. Give us wisdom with your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last hour we went through principles, and with the principles we have created a scorecard that we can use to help us evaluate uh, various types of investments. So this is the scorecard. We have nine points total. And the green check mark, I hope it actually shows up for the screen well enough for you to see, that means it's good. A red X means not good. I think that makes sense. And the point total is just the adding up of the green check marks. So what I've done with this scorecard, it's not an objective um, measurement that is applicable to everybody in all circumstances at all times. This is a tool for you to apply for your particular situation. So that needs to be stated up front. So when I say, is it easy to understand, an investment might be easy to understand for someone who has uh, a lot more experience or a lot more education in a particular field than I do. So just because I don't find it easy to understand does not necessarily mean it's not easy to understand for everybody. It might be for you. Uh, can it beat inflation? Of course. Things change. You know, investments can change with time. At there, were, uh, there was a time when uh, home mortgage rates were very high and CD rates were much higher than they are today and savings accounts and so forth. Uh, is it low cost? Of course, that's also a question that it's a, compared to what, right? Diversified. When we say diversified, some investment assets are diversified, has diversification built into them, uh, whereas some, they're easy to diversify on your own, versus some investments, they're just such large capital investments, it's hard to diversify. So there are different ways to answer that question. And then also speculation. We talked about speculation being something that generally arises from within the investor as opposed to being innately in the asset, but there are certain assets that by the way that they are handled, are, um, tend to be more speculative than others. So that's a question to ask. How much time to manage? I think that's self-explanatory. Acceptable risk? Different people have different risk tolerances. Some people uh, can take on more, some people can take on less. Liquidity, again, it's not a matter of right or wrong, whether it's a, something is liquid or not. It's just we need to take it within consideration in our whole investment portfolio. And this last one I need to clarify a little bit, and that is when I say complete moral clarity, it's not whether something is morally acceptable or not. That's not what it's saying. It's saying can we have clarity in all of its incidental and indirect moral affiliations? It's what I'm trying to communicate here. Is it possible when we're looking at a particular investment, is it possible to know with 100% certainty that all of its incidental uh, ramifications and interactions beyond my initial direct interaction is also morally in the clear, right? It's more a matter of can I know versus is it right or wrong? So I just want to make sure that that point is clear because if something is morally unacceptable, it's morally unacceptable. But this is more a matter of can I know with perfect clarity? All right. So let's uh, take a look here. At, uh, I already summarized this, but this scorecard is a guideline to help evaluate investment types. So some of these ratings may be subjective, okay? 
And higher scoring investments should be given priority in our portfolios, but that doesn't necessarily mean all lower scoring investments should just be discarded. They can be useful for diversification purposes. It's a matter of weight. You know, what are you going to place more weight in? Using the analogy of the eggs in the basket, the bigger the basket and the stronger the basket, the more eggs it can hold versus the one that's a little flimsier. So similar concept. So let's take a look here at some types of short-term savings. So I notice I call them short-term savings. They're not investments because they don't beat inflation. But savings accounts, money markets, CDs, we're familiar with what those are. We can get them at our local banks and other places. Bonds, there are corporate bonds, there are municipal bonds, there are US federal treasuries, they call them. There is also a type of bond called TIPS, and it stands for Treasury Inflation Protected Security. And what it is, it's a type of bond issued by uh, the US federal government that is pegged to inflation. So not only do you get what's stated on the, on the bond as an interest rate, but it also adjusts for inflation. So in, inflation goes up, you actually get uh, covered for the increase in inflation. So it's inflation protected. And then there are what's called bond funds. We'll talk about mutual funds more in a moment. But bond funds are a type of mutual fund that specialize in purchasing many bonds. And there are benefits and uh, pros and cons to doing it that way. But th that's what those are. And uh, SDA Union Revolving Funds. How many of you here are familiar with revolving fund? You've heard of what they are. Okay, so for those who are not familiar, at least here in the US, I don't know if they have them in other countries in the world, um, and not even all unions in the North American division has them anymore, but our unions have a fund in which we can invest money that goes back to the Lord's work. And this is what, how it works. You, you get a note, so you're loaning money to the church, and the church has this fund through which they can loan money out to other church entities for their use. So usually it's like, church building projects or buying a church or something like that. And so the churches then pay the union an interest rate. It might be four or 5%. And then the members who actually supplied the money to the fund, they also get uh, an interest rate. In the Southern Union where I'm at right now, I think the interest rate is about 1.25%. So we're not talking about huge amounts here, but for some place that's earning us a little bit of interest, and at the same time, it's investing in the Lord's work, I actually think the U SDA union revolving funds are a great option to include within our inv investment portfolio. It's something uh, worthy of being considered. And I'm in the Southern Union, so I'm not familiar with all of the other unions, but what I recall, one of my friends in the Southwestern Union said that their interest rates were quite a bit higher. And then out in the Pacific Union, I think they don't have revolving funds anymore. So you may have to do a little bit of calling to your union treasurer's office to get more information on that. So when we talk about these types of short-term savings, we want to run them through our scorecard. So are they easy to understand? In general, I think they're fairly easy to understand. I think you would agree. Can they beat inflation? And that's really the, the big issue here. They generally don't. And that's why we use them for short-term savings. So those of you who were here in the last hour, you, you remember we diversified short-term savings, things that we need within five years. Things longer than five years, we invest in something that can beat inflation. And so for the under five-year range, uh, these types of savings uh, vehicles can be useful. Now, is it low cost? 
in most of the cases that we just looked at, yeah, they're very low cost. If you've ever opened a savings account, it costs you nothing. Uh, and bond purchases and tips and so forth can be low cost. But things like bond funds, on the other hand, can be, don't have to be, but they can be more expensive because there's someone managing it for you and there's a whole mechanism in between you and the investment itself. So that's a matter of doing your homework. It might be, it might not be low cost. Is it diversified? Well, I put a green check mark here mainly because it's particularly useful for diversification purposes, these types of short-term savings uh, investment options. And are they speculative? In general, they're fairly safe in the sense that we're not speculating in them. Although people can and do speculate in bonds, but most people don't. How much time to manage? No time at all, really. Uh, this is exactly why we have these types of accounts, is to mitigate our risk. That's part of uh, diversification. So yes, I believe it's acceptable. Now, the issue with liquidity is that for a lot of what we talked about, it's very liquid. Savings accounts are liquid. But a CD, you're, you understand, you have to hold it to maturity. A bond is the same thing. But a bond fund, on the other hand, can be bought and sold within one business day generally. And an SDA revolving fund, it can be. Uh, usually, you get your money back within a business week or so. So some of them are liquid. Others, unless you want to take a penalty on your bond or... Uh, your CD rather, you may have issues with liquidity. And then complete moral clarity. So can we know with 100% certainty what all this money is being used for? For our church, the SDA Union Revolving Fund, I think uh, most of us hopefully wouldn't have major ethical concerns with loaning money to the church, but perhaps some people do. Um, but as far as uh, Putting money into the bond market, like getting a U.S. Treasury bond, you know that's a question that's really up to you, because the government surely are involved in things that I personally would not agree with. Uh, but that's one of those areas where I believe we've been giving some boundaries as to we have to do the make the best decision that we can. But that's a question for you to decide because we can't know for certainty where all those dollars we're loaning to the companies are or the uh, government is going. Same thing with getting a CD. We're loaning money to the bank. Are we comfortable with that? That's a question uh, to be considered. So let's talk about long-term investments now. Now, when we talk about long-term investments, particularly for those who have higher earning potential, which is, I believe, the target audience here at Amen, there is a frequent question about financial advisors because I believe you know doctors have limited time on their hands, and physicians. And if you have an area that you need uh, specialty uh, expertise, you refer people, right? You refer to a specialist. And so when it comes to the specialist to mow my lawn, generally, you know, uh, if you have, if you're going to earn more money being at work than to mow the lawn, you're going to pay the lawns keeping person to do that work for you. So why not with financial advising? or someone to manage my investments. This is a question I frequently get asked, particularly from my doctor and dentist friends. So I feel like it's important to talk about a little bit. The simple point is that not all financial advisors are created equal. And it's very important to understand that the term financial advisor really doesn't mean anything. It's not a term like MD, a doctor, or a dentist, where you actually you have to have certain qualifications in order to a, you know, carry that title. Financial advisors, anybody can call themselves a financial advisor. 
And so how do you determine the good ones from the not so good ones? Okay, so that's the point. The, the biggest question is you want to understand, are they salesmen or are they fiduciaries? That's the fundamental issue here. Because a financial advisor, when you hear the term, you think they're here to advise me. They're here to help me. They're like my coach on my team. But the reality is most financial advisors are, are salespeople. And uh, they sell anything from insurance to investment products to mutual funds to whatever else in between. And they call themselves financial advisors, but they're actually not. They don't have interests that are aligned to you. So what you want to find instead is what's called a fiduciary. Fiduciary is a person who is legally obligated to act in your, on your best, uh, for your best interest. And there are ways to determine that. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But CFP is the most common. It's not exactly a degree, but it's a certification. It stands for Certified Financial Planner. So you do have to take a certain number of classes. You do have to sit for a board in order to get this designation. But not all financial advisors are required to have a CFP. And just because someone has a CFP does not mean they're not a salesman. Okay, So you've got to keep these things in mind because uh, it's helpful to know what that is, but it may not necessarily answer our questions. So what we really have to do is we need to follow the money. How are they paid? That's the big question. Because financial advisors have different ways of being paid. The three most common one is a flat fee. Someone just pay, you pay them for their time. Or a percentage of assets. So they take a look at your portfolio that they have under management for that year, and they have a percentage of that uh, that they keep for their services. And then, of course, the commission, which would be a dead giveaway that you're talking to a salesman. Okay. And I just have to mention this, and that is doctors are prime targets because uh, the financial industry knows that physicians have limited time, they have high earning potential, and they have this uh, propensity to outsource to specialists. And so they, they know how to hone in. You've got a big target on your back if you're a physician. Uh, and I've read a few financial blogs where they actually you know, have quotes from other forums of these types of salespeople talking about doctors and uh, anyway, better to stay off those forums. <laughs> but um, the point is, just this is a rule of thumb just to remember. No one will ever care as much about your money than you unless they want part of it for themselves. So if there's a financial advisor who pretends okay, that they, have, that they care more about your money than you do, they probably do, and they just want to make your money their money. And... You want a financial advisor who is going to be honest, who's going to be a teacher, who's going to be on your team, be a fiduciary, who's going to charge reasonable rates. So here's a spectrum of uh, financial advisors, and we're not going to read through all of it. I got this from a financial blog that I follow, and I thought it was, it's not perfect, but I think it summarizes the point. So over here in the green and the blue, this is the range where you want to play. If you're looking for a financial advisor, this is where you want to focus. If it's yellow, orange, or red, you don't really want to go there. And the similarity here on this, on this side really is that they are generally charging a flat fee or they are taking a percentage of assets. And they do not get paid by commission. Because if they're paid by commission, they are incentivized to sell a product whether it's in your best interest or not. 
So fee-only passive management, fee-only active management, you notice only here, over here, then all of a sudden it becomes more commission-based. The other point, point that you have to remember is you have to ask this person, you need to check if they act as a fiduciary. That needs to be very clear. And then the last point is you want someone who is looking at your financial picture holistically, not someone who is primarily looking at one or two aspects. So I'm not saying that all insurance salesmen are bad, okay? Make, make sure I'm making that clear. But an insurance salesman who is only specialized in selling you insurance is that. He's an insurance salesman or a broker, not a financial advisor. So a financial advisor is someone who wants to look at your whole picture. What are your goals? What are your values? Your income, helping you with budgeting, children's savings, not just to push you into doing what pads their pockets, basically. So just like when we're talking about using another analogy here at Amen, well, as physicians, we want to look at a person holistically in the same manner when we're talking about our financial health, we're wanting a financial advisor that will help us in a holistic way. Okay, that's the easiest way that I could summarize. And you want to make sure that their interests are aligned to yours. And generally, you look at the payment structure for that uh, information. So this, these slides will be available on Audioverse with the messages, so you can check it out in more detail later. But let's continue on, and let's talk about some specifics now. Okay, let's, since we're here at Amen, and I know we have a number of uh, business people here and physicians and with clinics and practices, just want to start there. I'm not here to talk about how to run a practice. That's beyond my pay grade. But within the context of our discussion here, I just want to bring out a couple of points when we think about uh, our practices and our businesses as an investment. The first thing to remember is that it's your career. Okay? If, you are, if that's your primary source of income, it's not, particularly, it's not only an investment. It's also your career. And so you have to view it differently. But I do want to mention this, and that is, are you diversified? Because even if, because I have talked with people, or I've heard people say that their plan for their retirement or investments plan is to basically invest in their private business. And that's it. And I don't necessarily think that's a horrible idea, but I do want to interject this one thought. Imagine if you were, let's say, a dentist with a dental office in Northern California. And you open... Or you go to work one day and you hear on the news that you know half your town got burned down and even if your practice was still standing and not permanently damaged and even it was well insured do you think that practice is going to be affected you understand this is not a hypothetical situation and it's not something that's likely to happen to you know to all of us but the reality is things do happen and it has happened. And so for our friends who may have practices right in that region that got severely affected by these fires, uh, they are at risk. Their business is at risk because even if it wasn't damaged, they have clients that are displaced now for a significant period of time. And so even as a business owner, I, I think it is prudent to consider diversification outside of just the business. Not to say that you shouldn't invest in your business, you should, but also think of other ways of minimizing your risk. And the other thing about risk, I will say, I can't help myself, is debt. 
We're gonna, it's going to come back again when we talk about risk and other forms of investment, is that whenever you inject large amounts of debt into a situation, even if it was previously a low-risk endeavor, it becomes high-risk, because that's what debt does. It's a magnifier. It's leverage, right? That's what they call it. Leverage, it magnifies the motion, either up or down. So just something to keep in mind. So I'm not, a, I'm not here to tell you how to run your business, so let's move on, okay? So those are just a few thoughts I want to mention. So we had a question earlier about individual stocks, investing in the stock market. And uh, we're going to talk about a number of ways to invest in stocks, primarily because it's the most common options available to most of us. So individual stocks to begin with. So let's take a look at our scorecard here. We have a red X here for easy to understand. So what do I mean? Stocks are fairly easy to understand. You're buying a portion of a business. You collect your dividends, you can sell it later. What's so hard to understand? It's not so much the concept of stock owning that's hard to understand, is that in order to intelligently hold stock, whether it's a privately held company or publicly held company for that matter, is that as a business owner, we need to actually understand the business. How does it make money? How can it lose money? How does it operate? Who are the, what's the management philosophy? What are the values? You know, the, the financial statements. All of these things are part of understanding. And if you are looking at investing in individual businesses, whether as a private owner or on the public stock market exchanges, to understand also comes along with this point down here about diversification. Because the amount of time it takes to diversify or to invest in one company, imagine if you're diversifying across multiple businesses. You multiply the time that it takes to do proper research and due diligence out to however many businesses you need to properly diversify your portfolio. And so I actually think it takes far more time as well to properly understand in order to be well diversified. So you see how these things go together and if you want to do it right, you, you start seeing a lot of red X's. So is it low cost? Well, the, the point I want to make here is with a green check mark, there are ways to invest in stocks affordably. There's a little app. It's called Robinhood. You can do uh, trades for free. But more often than not, there are transaction costs and it can be high. And of course, there are taxes associated. Even if you don't think you owe anything, buying and selling, you can get a tax hit at the end of the year. And this whole idea of speculation. Having a, owning stock in a business does not necessarily mean you're speculating. Just like a doctor who owns a practice, he's a he might be 100% shareholder of the business. That doesn't mean he's speculating. But a lot of people do speculate in stocks, probably the most speculated asset class in the world. And not only speculation, you know, as far as trading, day trading, but when people start injecting debt, they're trading on what's called margin. They're borrowing money to trade. The risk goes up, and it's even more speculative. And then there are options contracts and things of that nature that make stocks in general the way that the people talk about it, if you're watching TV, CNBC, or whatever, the way they talk about it, they're not talking about investing in stock. They're talking about speculating in stock. And we don't want to associate with that. And so that's generally what people mean when they talk about stock investing. And so that's also why I don't believe it's an acceptable amount of risk for most people. But it is very liquid. For most stocks, you can sell it within one business day. As long as the markets are open, it's not even one business day. It can be uh, instant practically. 
but on the moral clarity side, because you are able to look at each business individually, you're investing in individual businesses, it is possible to have that clarity of knowing what are their values, what are they doing, how are they conducting their business to a point where we can know what they're doing. So this is, a, this is an uh, alluring uh, prospect, just like uh, Dr. Bivens, one of our attendees in the last session shared with me, he recently invested in a, in a company and this was one of those things that made a difference for him. He was able to know what they were doing. So scorecard wise, the way I scored it, we're talking four, three to four points out of nine. So in general, I don't think investing in individual stocks is a particularly uh, good idea for most lay people. Of course, if you are professional in the financial industry's world, your scores may differ. But for most people, I believe I would not be comfortable recommending that. But we need to talk about mutual funds because mutual funds are probably the most familiar for most people because it's available in our 401ks. It's what's available for most of us most easily. So active mutual funds are referring generally to mutual funds of equities or of uh, stock. So what's a mutual fund? Let me just define it very quickly for you. A mutual fund is an investment asset type where a lot of different investors pool their money together to buy a collection of assets. And that process is overseen by what's called a fund manager. So there's a professional fund manager overseeing basically this pot of money and allocating those resources in such a way that is defined by its fund objective. Okay, so these are a few important terms to keep in mind. So a mutual fund is governed by its objective and it's listed in the prospectus. Any, any mutual fund will have a prospectus and you can read and say, what is the objective of this fund? What is it trying to do? And an objective, for example, might be to invest in the highest dividend paying stocks of large companies in North America. That's one objective. Another fund might have an objective of, I we want to invest in uh, small, uh, fast growing companies in the developing world of Southeast Asia. So that's another objective. You see they're very different and they don't overlap, but some of them do overlap. And so active mutual funds are frequently available in 401ks, IRAs, HSAs, you know, and education savings accounts and things like that. And they are easy to manage and that's why they are so popular. So let's take a look at the scorecard here. So mutual funds, they are easy to understand in the sense that their objectives are very easy to understand and they are very clearly defined. You can read the perspectives. Everything is very clearly defined out and they are highly regulated in the sense that there are a lot of protections so you're not being fooled. Mutual funds uh, generally can beat inflation, but because you have a fund manager that's sort of managing the assets in between you, uh, for you and all of the other investors, there's a cost associated with that. And that cost is generally called the expense ratio. But beyond the expense ratio, a lot of mutual funds also tack on marketing costs. They have what's called front side load. And some of those costs can be above 5%. So right off the top, if you put in $100, $5 or more, it can be just skimmed off the top before anything happens. And so in most cases, active mutual funds are very, they're not low cost. But it's interesting uh, because it's already diversified. 
the idea of a mutual fund is that many people with smaller amounts of assets can pool their assets together to have more diversification. And also, mutual funds are designed to punish speculators. So you can't jump in and out. You get punished for it. And so it's a very non-speculative asset class by design. How much time does it take to manage? It can literally be set and forget in your 401ks and those types of accounts especially. You can set how much you want auto-deducted uh, every, every month or every pay period, and that's it. It can be very quick. And then the acceptable amount of risk. It's a matter of your personal risk tolerance, but uh, in general, mutual funds have those risks very clearly spelled out for you. And I have a red X here because there are certain fund objectives in and of themselves, meaning some funds are designed to be highly risky. And so you're going to be able to understand that, but not all mutual funds are created equal, and some of them I would not recommend. And so that's why I have a red X there. Liquidity-wise, mutual funds can be liquidated within one business day in most cases. But here's the big issue here, is that because of the way that mutual funds are set up, the fund manager manages the fund based on the agreed-upon objective, the charter, right? So we don't really have a say as investors. We apply our money for the accomplishment of a certain goal that the fund prospectus spells out, but how that goal is accomplished, we don't have control over that, and it's up to the fund manager. And in most cases, mutual funds, you're not going to be able to know at any given time what assets are actually being held within the fund. It's just not possible. And so for that reason, it is not possible to know with 100% certainty what businesses, what stocks or bonds, or what other assets are held in a mutual fund at a certain time. So that's a question. You know, I know certain people, many people, have uh, discomfort with that. And I think that's something appropriate to consider and to uh, think through for yourself where you are on that. And so uh, I rank this between six to seven points, so it's a little bit higher than uh, trading individual stocks. So for those who have had some concern over the morality of mutual funds, I do. I mentioned this last session, you, if you weren't here, I have a whole three-part article series dealing with this specific issue, the morality of mutual funds. Look it up on savingthecrumbs.com and it'll come up. But there is a class of mutual funds. So when we're talking about socially responsible investing funds, or SRI funds, this is a subcategory of mutual funds. And they were uh, designed by concerned individuals about ethical investing. They say, we don't want mutual funds that can invest in things that we don't agree with, so why not create mutual funds that have uh, screens and filters based on our moral uh, values? And the general term that's used is socially responsible investing. And there might be other terms uh, as well out there, but this is the most common one. So this is the scorecard. Everything is the same. It's not low cost. It's just like a mutual fund. Perspectives, everything's the same. Everything's the same. Uh, the risk, every, it's just a mutual fund, except they also filter out uh, things that don't match the moral filter. But why do I still have a red X there? The simple answer is that the filters are not always, actually, in fact, I'll just say this. I have yet to find an SRI mutual fund that has a screen that matches my own. So just because it's called an ethical fund, 
it may not mean it abides by your own ethical standards. So let me give you some examples. Okay. See, here are a few fund examples. There are what's called the Ave Maria funds. So these are ethical funds, SRI funds, uh, screened for Catholic values. I'm not a Catholic, so my values don't apply. There are the halal funds for Muslims. You know, there's certainly overlap between my values, but there are a lot of things that they don't screen for that I would. And then there's also the concept of biblically responsible investing versus socially responsible investing. Is there a difference in between those terms? Because let me give you this example. When we think about biblically responsible, we're thinking of biblical values. When people say socially responsible investing, they may not have anything to do with biblical values. This is wealth simple. Wealth simple, if you're on Facebook, or even if you're on Facebook, they might not be targeting you. But I have been targeted by wealth simple, and I have been just blasted by their ads recently because they're a new technology based investment firm, and one of their big claims to fame is ethical investing. And so these are just two of their SRI funds and their objectives. So let me, you can just use this as an example to see uh, what they mean by when they say socially responsible. So this is the carbon fund, global stocks with a low carbon exposure than the broader market. So you can understand for them that's a social responsibility issue. But when I think about ethics, the first thing that comes to mind is not carbon exposure. <laughs> the next one is even more ominous sounding. It's called the She Fund. And it screens for companies that achieve greater levels of senior leadership gender diversity. And of course, what do they mean when they say genders, right? Uh, how many genders are they talking about? So you can already detect that there is, a, uh, there is a tilt to a certain side of the spectrum, if you will, when you talk about socially responsible investing. So just because it says it's socially responsible does not mean that it's good for our values. But of course, there are the Christian SRI funds. They prefer to call the BRI funds, Biblically Responsible Investing, not the Biblical Research Institute. So this is the Timothy Plan. The Timothy Plan is one of the oldest evangelical Christian-based uh, mutual fund house and they have their own screen. And this is a, a graphic that illustrates their principles by which they evaluate. I know the text is small, so I'll try to uh, summarize for you. So here are some of their screens. Number one, life. So abortion. They filter out companies that uh, commit abortion. Family entertainment. So no uh, violence, language, sex, drugs, things of that nature. Down here, pornography, purity. So they screen out anything to do with pornography. Marriage, lifestyle, so this has to do with the biblical definition of marriage and things of that nature. Uh, liberty, so this is talking about human rights. Slave labor, human trafficking, terrorism, Christian persecution, that's this principle. And then alcohol here, tobacco here, and gambling here. So we look at this screen and we're beginning to think, yeah, that's more like it, right? We're not talking about carbon emissions and gender diversity, but we're talking about more biblical values. So this is Timothy plan, and I think we can resonate more with it. However, does this really fully encapsulate an Adventist set of ethics? Because you know what's a big company that they invest in? Starbucks. <laughs> Starbucks is actually very high on most socially responsible indexes because they have, they're very good with the environment, they're good with human rights, 
you know, good with human rights is in quotes, right? Um, but they serve caffeine. Most people don't have a problem with that, but we as Adventists, we should, <laughs> whether we do or not, uh, but we should. And not only that, what about uh, fast food restaurants, right? And then what about uh, weapons manufacturers and defense contractors? You know, they're not filtered here. And so my point is not to say, I'm not trying to throw these types of mutual funds under the bus. I'm simply helping you understand why I could not give it a green X, okay? Is that even though there are biblically responsible investment funds and socially responsible funds, when we drill down into the actual filters that they use, I have yet to find one that fully matches an Adventist set of values. And I think we're all friends here. We understand that even within Adventism, there are also variances as well. So for an individual level, right, it ultimately comes down to our individual conscience, what we're comfortable with. And I dare say that there's likely to not be something out there that's exactly going to match. So that's, a, again, the question is uh, up for you to determine between you and the Lord what your level of comfort is with some of these things. I'm just sharing with you what some of those options are. So index funds, okay, let's move on. This is another subset of mutual funds that are called index funds or passive funds. What are they? When we talk about indexes, you've all heard the news anchors talking about the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500. You, you all familiar with those terms? Well, those are all stock market indexes. And what those are, they are um, a yardstick. They're a thermometer for the health of the stock market that has been pre-assembled by a group of individuals or companies. And they're just an agreed upon metric by which to measure the health of the market. And so when people talk about the stock market is up or the stock market is down, they're talking generally about the S&P 500 index. So the index says it's up or the index says it's down. That's what they mean. And so what in index funds do is instead of saying, okay, we're going to hire a fund manager to pick the funds or pick the stocks and to invest our money to best match the objective, the objective of index funds are merely to reflect the index. So in other words, the most common index fund is the S&P 500 fund. I've mentioned it a couple times. It's the oldest and it's the most popular what that index fund's objective states is that we will match as closely as possible the S&P 500 index. And because it's just an index, it doesn't require a lot of human effort. It can be more or less automated. And that's why they're also called passive funds. An active fund means there's a human being that has to be at the controls, deciding when to buy or sell, what, you know, doing research and things. A passive fund merely says, we're not trying to beat the market. We're just trying to match the market. And as a result of that, they don't have to charge as much. And it becomes a lot more easily manageable. So easy to understand, just like a mutual fund, the objective is fairly easy to understand, even easier in that it just tells you, this is the index that we're trying to match. That's it. And they just you know, reflect what's in that index. Can it beat inflation? It is the stock market, essentially, matches the stock market, and so it can beat inflation. Is it low cost? 
Well, this was one of the biggest problems with mutual funds. They're very costly. And so index funds cut that cost down sometimes from 1% to 2% expense ratio for an active fund. It can get down as low as 0 or 0.03%. So for a $10,000 investment, it might cost you $3 a year. That's practically free for all intents and purposes. Uh, is it diversified? Just like an active mutual fund, it is non-speculative. It still has all those secure uh, punishments for people who want to speculate. Uh, how much time does it take to manage? The same as before. The risk would be approximately, would, would not have the red X there anymore because it's just matching the index. So you're simply riding the market. You are simply saying, I am going to invest in the US stock market economy. Liquidity-wise, it is also the same as mutual funds. One business day, uh, you can liquidate. And there is a special flavor of index funds. I don't want to get make this too complicated. But there's just a subset of index funds called ETFs that can be traded uh, almost instantly. So you can sell them anytime the market is open. You can get your money out instantaneously. But of course, the moral clarity, it's the same as an active mutual fund because it's just reflecting the market at, at you know, whatever the index is. Whatever is in the index is going to be in the index fund. And so that's also one of those things that we're not going to be ha able to have complete clarity. But nevertheless, overall, it does add up to eight points. So I told you before, unfortunately, there's no such thing as a perfect investment. Um, but the index fund does come up to eight out of nine points. And just uh, from, for full disclosure, uh, in my own personal retirement savings, my primary investment are index funds. So that's what I have chosen to do. And uh, these are some of the, most com the biggest and most familiar companies that offer index funds. And they also have some advisement services. So we talked about fund advisors earlier. They offer some, um, some financial advising services as well. And they all are required to be fiduciaries. So something to consider. So Vanguard is the largest uh, mutual fund company in the world right now. Fidelity and Charles Schwab are also two other ones. They all have index funds. But these two down here, Betterment and Wealthfront, are a new form of investment company. It's called FinTech, Financial Technology Company. So they're applying artificial intelligence and techno internet technology to help give what's called robo-advising. So it's advisement based on your uh, parameters that you give them, and they have algorithms that automatically generate investment portfolios for you and adjust them on your behalf for a small fee. So they are intelligent investing platforms. Uh, and you can look them up for more information. I have not used them, but uh, I have read a fair deal about them. So that's enough about stock investing. I feel like we did need to spend a little bit more time because that's what most of us are going to run into uh, in our workplaces and whatnot. But the second big one really is real estate. So let's talk about real estate for a little bit. Whoops. When I talk about real estate, I'm just, there are many ways to invest in real estate. You can um, invest in land, billboards, public serv uh, pu uh, personal storage units what have you. But most of the time when we talk about real estate, we're talking about buying a, a home, a residence, and renting it out. It's also commercial real estate, I understand. But generally speaking, you buy a home or duplex or an apartment, you fix it up, you rent it out. So that's what I'm talking about. 
Is real estate investing easy to understand? Yes, we all understand how rent works. Can it beat inflation? Surely, yes, it can. Is it low cost? Is, well, we, I think we understand that to fix up a place, to buy a place, closing costs, uh, insuring it, uh, insuring it, tax, property taxes, and things like that, there are a lot of costs involved with owning property. Is it diversified? And this is one of those things where makes real estate a little bit uh, challenging for people who have low uh, amounts of liquid assets. So people with low earning potential, it becomes very difficult to invest in real estate because to buy even one property, you know, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, but if there is the ability to diversify across multiple units, even if all of those units are all in a similar geographic location, is it still really diversified? Because let's say you have beachfront property. You have five beachfront property on Puerto Rico. You might have been diversified across five properties, but they're all on Puerto Rico. And uh, you're still not tremendously diversified even in that case. So that's why real estate is very difficult to diversify. Non-speculative, of course, people can speculate in real estate, but generally not. How much time to manage? Being a landlord is, uh, can be you know, very time consuming. I think we know how that works. Is it an acceptable amount of risk? I think most of the time when we think about real estate, we think of it as very low risk. It's secured, it's a secured asset. You know, I have a piece of land there, but I do have a red X there because whenever we inject large amounts of debt, here's that theme again, when we have a large mortgage on the, on the property, even if it is a secured asset, it's still a risk. And so whenever there's large amounts of debt, I always you know, up the risk factor. Liquidity, we understand selling a property can take a long time, but this is, I believe, one of the reasons why real estate is one of the most popular types of investments for Adventists, is that we can know, we can screen exactly who we're renting to. We don't have to have any questions, no fear that something you know, inappropriate is happening. But nevertheless, some of these other things, it adds up to four to five points. But I do want to mention a few statements here, particularly in light of the end times, that real estate has value not just for a financial investment perspective. Avenus homepage 141, paragraph 2, fathers and mothers who possess a piece of land and a comfortable home are kings and queens. That sounds like a pretty good investment to be able to be kings and queens. Avenus Home 373, paragraph 2. Educate our people to get out of the cities into the country where they can obtain a small piece of land and make a home for themselves and their children. Parents can secure small homes in the country with land for cultivation where they have orchards and where they can raise vegetables and small fruits to take the place of flesh meat. God will help his people to find such homes outside the city. That's Country Living, page 24, paragraph 3. So Ellen White makes the, makes the case. Owning a piece of property with a small home out in the country where you can grow your food is actually a very wise investment. All right, let's continue. So we have now real estate investment trust. We're still on the theme of real estate. And this is where we talk about how to invest in real estate without owning any physical real estate. So real estate investment trust, also abbreviated REIT. That's how you pronounce it, REIT. It's a special type of business uh, that is basically holding company for real estate properties. And it doesn't have to be just real estate properties. It could even be real estate mortgages and things. But to keep it simple, 
we'll just talk about properties. And you can buy a share in that company, uh, and as a result, then you can own a piece of all of those properties and their associated income that comes along with it. And REITs are specially treated under tax law, where as long as they pay out 90% of the income that they generate at uh, every year, they have special tax benefits. And so what that means is that they pay out a lot of dividends to their shareholders. So as a real estate investment trust, sometimes they pay as much as 10 to 12% every year in interest. And they do that because uh, they have to to retain their tax benefits. And REITs also can come in different flavors. So you can think of REITs as sort of a mutual fund for actual physical real estate. So there are REITs that specialize in different niches in real estate. One might be uh, self-storage units. So you can buy one that just specializes in that. Some can be in timberland. Some can be in billboards on the side of the road. Some can be in medical offices. And then there are those that we probably wouldn't be interested in, would be more hospitality that includes things like restaurants that serve alcohol and, and hotels and gambling casinos and things like that. So real estate investment trusts, that's what they are. And so going through our scorecard here, are they easy to understand? I believe they are fairly easy to understand. Can it beat inflation? Yes, just like real estate can. Are they low cost? Yes and no, it sort of depends. You can, tr uh, you can buy shares in them without commission sometimes, but generally you will. Is it diversified? Yes, because it's like a mutual fund. You have many different properties in one uh, asset type. Is it non-speculative? Well, people do speculate in them just like they do in stocks because they are sold uh, in the stock exchanges. How much time does it take to manage? I put a red X there because you're still going to have to do your homework to understand what those companies are investing in. So what, are, what properties are they actually holding? Are they keeping uh, true to their objective? Is it an acceptable amount of risk? Well, there is the risk now of not just, some people might think it is, it's acceptable. But the red X there is because now you're investing in an intermediate. So what if that holding company goes down? Right? There's that risk that's concentrated in that one company that's holding those properties. Of course, the liquidity is still there. And then the moral clarity is yes and no. It all depends on how much homework you're willing to do to investigate what is actually being held by those companies. And so this has a broad range, anywhere from four to eight points. Anywhere from four to eight points. And so we do have a few more minutes. So let me wrap up here with a few resources that I would recommend as we conclude. And we have, I believe uh, we may have a few minutes for questions. So here are a few books that I would um, recommend. The first one here, Larry Burkett, Investing for the Future. This is the only investing book on this list that's written from a Christian perspective. So I definitely think you should start there. Uh, even though I don't necessarily agree with everything that Larry Burkett teaches, but this one I think gives some good principles. Uh, a Random Walk Down Wall Street is a thick book, but it is the most authoritative book on this list from a financial perspective. He's a highly degreed financial expert, I think from Stanford University or some Ivy League school. And it helps you understand how the markets work and uh, gives you a basis for understanding that. The middle book here, The White Coat Investor, would be a good book for this crowd because it is a book by a doctor for doctors. He's an MD, an emergency room physician, 
And it's not just investing. Just because the title is white coat investor, that's just sort of the you know, pseudonym he gave, some, he gave himself. It's really a whole a holistic guide to personal finance and investing from a physician's perspective. I think they give, he gives a lot of good insights. This book up here, The Simple Path to Wealth uh, by J.L. Collins, is a great introductory book. So if you want something that's real, a light read, has a lot of stories, uh, but gives you a good framework of how investing works, this is, the, uh, this is the place to start. You can finish it, finish the book in an afternoon. He's got uh, a really easy to read style. And then this one here by John C. Bogle. John Bogle is the founder of Vanguard Corporation, the largest mutual fund house in the world right now with some four or five trillion dollars of under management. He's a guy who invented index funds. He's a guy who basically is the grandfather of it all. And this is his little book on common sense investing, which basically explains the, the uh, theory behind index funds and why they are superior than actively managed funds. And uh, there are also some websites I would recommend. Savingthecrumbs.com. Savingthecrumbs.com is our personal website. We mentioned that before. The White Coat Investor. If you don't want to buy the book, I'm trying to save you some money. <laughs> if you don't want to buy the book, his website contains all the principles that are in the book. It's just not organized in such an easy to read manner. You have to click around. But it's there. Mr. Money Mustache is one of my personal uh, favorite websites on the internet. He's a uh, he is very funny, but you know, be be aware he he comes from a humanistic, naturalist worldview. He's not a Christian at all, so you're gonna have to filter out the filth. Uh, but he has some good insights and good good uh, nuggets. And then J. L. Collins, N. H. That stands for New Hampshire, where he's from. dot com, is the gentleman who wrote the Simple Path to Wealth. And in the same way, all of the information in the book is available on his website. So if you want to just save some money, don't buy the book. Just go to his website. Okay, well, let us conclude with prayer so we can make room for our next seminar coming in. Thank you for your time. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, being with us this afternoon. I hope that some of these practical things, even though it might seem a little dry in, in uh, certain ways, hopefully we can see the options that are available to us that you have given for us to increase your talents. And I pray that we will be wise stewards and that we might be faithful in all that we do to give glory to you. Bless us the remainder of this afternoon and be with the remainder of the seminars that are going on as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.